Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Where our goal is to make politics more accessible and less intimidating. The show features an interview with an expert in the political field, walking us through the many cues we have about politics, civics, government, and more. By providing civic education in the places we are. On our phones. And in the language we speak. And yes, you know, we say like a lot. It's kind of the point. Because politics needed a rebrand. All right. Welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Holy shit. What an interesting day in politics. Um, um, okay. First of all, let me just tell you what sound I want to make a video to on TikTok regarding today that I can't because there are just too many problematic elements to this song. But the Hose Ain't Loyal song would just be. Oh, that's gold. So perfect. But I couldn't Such find gold. one that wasn't like mm, not it on TikTok. But like yeah. these hoes really ain't loyal. Oh, my gosh. Which is oh interesting because the Republicans usually are. Well, it's funny. So everyone, what we're talking about is oh, yeah. the background. Speaker of the House voting situation that's been going on today. McCarthy has been for months expected and campaigning to be the new Speaker of the House for the Republicans. And as of lately, it's not looking like he had the votes. We talked about it yesterday in Top Stories. And I feel like we also like still yesterday, we were kind of still theorizing like, why is this going this way? Like we are even talking about like the petty little things in between some of these house members. Like if you could look at some top stories, you know what we're talking about, but one person doesn't want to back him or said yesterday they didn't want to back him because McCarthy didn't call him to congratulate him on winning his election. So there's like weird little petty shit going on, but it's just really blew up today. It really did. And Matt Gates had a media clip where he's like, you can't drain the swamp without like when you put like the alligator in charge or something <laughs> along those eyes or line. Oh my God, those lines. And he literally is like, I'm from Florida. Like I know gators, like that type Ew. of commentary. And I was just like dying because it's also, also speaking of that video of him and AOC. Yeah, well, our friend V also put like such an interesting caption on it and was like, not AOC, like whipping votes for Speaker of the House <laughs> with Matt Gates. And I was like, I love you and I will share this, but this is unlikely. Yeah. Unlikely, but totally. hilarious. Fine. No. I, oh my God. There's just so much, so many funny things that came out of today. We'll run through like what really is happening with the Speaker of the yeah. House situation in a second, but. There's just been so many like funny pictures of like McCarthy just sitting there literally like hand over mouth. He's sitting there like, are we joking? He's like, they just got so many good pictures of him being so fucking nervous. And then also like the Santos of it all is there sitting there like literally twiddling his thumbs like doesn't know why he's there. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> AOC so and Matt Gates are like getting into it on the house floor and there's a full video, but we can't hear the audio, which is just 
so heartbreaking but wow what a day literally what what a day day. but I have to say and I never I never thought these words would leave my mouth ever in the history of this earth I kind of feel badly for McCarthy I don't (laughs) (laughs) I do not I'm the petty one that is I know wow what a role reversal I you know I just don't but I also am like only you know because what? he's he's wanted this for so long and he's tried. This isn't his first run at this situation. So I just, I feel like it's one of those scenarios where, you know, you keep trying, you're so close, and then someone keeps moving the benchmark or moving the pole or whatever that phrase is. It really just tastes so sweet to me. Okay. All right. You're eating gummy <laughs> bears and I'm eating sour gummy bears. And I yeah. don't know why that's my comparison besides that. I'm so well, hungry. let's run through the story. Yeah, okay. This this kind of runs through to like what each side in the GOP is kind of feeling and why they are opposed or for McCarthy. But to get off, the House leadership vote dragged on Tuesday as the GOP failed on three ballots to unite behind Rep. Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker and lost a 20th Republican on his third try after the second ballot. McCarthy insisted to reporters that the party is, quote, unified. Okay. And Tuesday's vote marked the first time in a hundred years the House Speaker vote went to multiple ballots. So that alone is just crazy. The historic <laughs> again, I I think it's sweet, but I understand where you're coming from of like that's sad for McCarthy. That's that like sad. that's like, that's sad. Am I is it a gleeful LOL moment from like a Democrat's POV of being like, you know, sucks to suck for sure. And I don't not feel that as well. It's just. But I think what's know, so sweet about it is kind of like the like the fool, like they're all fools, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Like they are all like these puppety fools. And it just it's got to suck to be the one that is like made a mockery of very specifically mm-hmm. when you've also tried to be like the serious one. Like if you make a yeah. mockery of Matt Gates obviously no shit Sherlock like yeah. that's to be expected same with like a Marjorie Taylor Greene but Kevin McCarthy even though he has supported all of the extreme far-right stuff especially in terms of where he flip-flopped on the insurrection he paints it in a more elevated manner and tries to come off as this like classic old-school Republican which again arguments against why that doesn't make sense but just that he's the one that's made to look like the absolute fool is just so funny. Yeah, it's but so it is sad. interesting you know because I mean? there's Matt Gates, but then like MGT is one of his most vocal supporters. So it's just like so weird. And what I was going to say too is like what we talked about a little bit yesterday was like, I think the reason it's so sweet is that for so long, like the, I think best thing the G or the GOP has been good at is unity and like being on the same page, even when it's literally like, the worst possible thing for them to do to all be on the same page about like the insurrection and be like oh it's not a big deal like they are so unified in the way that like literally trump could have like killed someone on the street and they'd be like "Eh, yeah it's fine like that's that's the level of unification that we are used to from this party Mm -hmm. so to see this play out is so interesting but we'll just keep running through this because 
Two Republicans razor thin majority in the House. McCarthy could only afford to lose four Republican votes. And in losing 20 Republican votes, McCarthy not only fell short of the majority needed, but he also came up behind Democratic Rep. Hakeem Jeffries, who received all of his Democratic votes. So the minority leader got more votes than the potential for attempting to be new majority Speaker of the House. Wow. Oh wow. You really. <laughs> that was a lot. But anyway, so supporters of McCarthy, this is their arguments. They argue that he has earned the position after leading the House Republicans back to the majority through gains in both the 2020 and 2022 elections. They praised his, quote, commitment to America plan for a GOP majority. Rep. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has emerged as one of the most vocal McCarthy supporters, has also warned that any GOP alternative to McCarthy could be less conservative and give less leeway for hardline conservatives like herself, which is like, if I was McCarthy, especially when we're about to run through like the opposing yeah. side and why they're opposing McCarthy, what? the way that I would be like, MGT, I'm going to need you to shut your fucking mouth <laughs> while I campaign no, for this role shit. because I think you're only going to hurt me. But also, I don't want your support. Same time, like, and we were sort of touching on this a second ago. It's like Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene are BFFs, right? I'm so confused. So this is like such a weird thing for them to not be aligned on. Yeah, there's something to this. I think there's something we don't know. I'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. Like, I just confusion, confusion. Yeah, but. Then those who are opposed to McCarthy or withholding support for him argue that smaller than expected gains in the 2022 midterms should not be awarded or sorry, rewarded. They are pushing McCarthy to take even stronger stances and tactics against Democrats and the Biden administration want to plan to balance the federal budget and favor rules, rules changes that would empower individual members, among other demands. So. This was interesting to me because it's like the fact that there's this party is so split as to like also what just happened in the 2022 midterms. Like, I do agree with the opposed group being like, yeah, you guys need something different. McCarthy's leadership in the party clearly wasn't working and you guys should have had a huge majority after this last election and you only got and you're, you know, struggling to hold on to even your four votes that keeps you in the lead so it's just like what and then the other side is saying no 2020 and 2022 were great for us what (laughs) were there at least even if they're not saying it's great this was great for us they're saying this was a good stepping stone to a positive future yeah but like whatever it is it's no it's interesting and i think we're just gonna continue to see the squabble fest mm-hmm. unfold like 100 so I, and i've and- also seen because you know doing a little social scroll from you know a moment to moment today and super interesting to see that so many reps were not actually were like waiting hours to be what is that word oh my god inaugurated mm-hmm. the way i was about to say inducted <laughs> i was like that's not it inducted like, into hall the of fame. hall of fame Literally, Hall of Fame. I can't. Why am I just losing every thought? I I can only think of my stomach right now in times like these. Inauguration. Inauguration. But they're like waiting to be inaugurated because this is holding it up. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's so wild to me. Oh my god, Sam. Why weren't we there this week? Like I, I would have died. No. 
But Ugh. like also, yeah, we're going to have to we're gonna figure that out. I want our goal for on the national federal level, 2024, we're there for some inauguration stuff. 100%. For 2023, look, we've got some big races that are going to be happening. Yeah. So, I mean, we could be we could be a part of some of those too. Yes, but God damn, I wanted to be. <laughs> I know. I know. But anyways. Yes. And also, well. I know I made like a video about this, but it really gave back to school energy. Like it's, I really yeah. felt like it was like, we're back to school. Like, oh my God, did you see so-and-so by their like new locker? And oh my God, <laughs> they're friends with so-and-so. And like over the summer, they made out with blah, 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 blah. Like that. Well, you know, it's also we didn't talk about in DC. I don't think we talked about this from our DC trip. We went right after Thanksgiving and aka right after the election and like the halls of the hill but also their office building was like full of couches and all their furniture because people were moving in and out that like also gave summer you Mm -hmm. know like yeah and they're like moving stuff out at the end of like the semester sign my yearbook vibes yeah oh my god wait (laughs) it's coming full circle this is so funny yeah and speaking of actually like that whole vibe and getting to know the process of how do they pick their offices was that look like Jeff Jackson, who is a newly elected congressman from North Carolina, just did a video breakdown. It's on his Instagram, I believe. So go check it out. Get the the details on sort of this like funky, weird, forever old process as to how they do it. Yeah. No, totally. I um yeah, Fresh I would meat. have like asked anyone there, be like, can we just Sam and I just get passes so we can just sit in the tunnel and just watch everyone go by and just see the people watch a disgruntled you know yeah. That neither of us could keep a straight face. Like we oh my God. we suffered enough in our one Madison Cawthorn. Yeah. Running. Oh my god. We, the way that that took over my body of trying to keep together <laughs> for a good ten minutes. Yeah. Oh my god. But what this all means too, moving forward, without a speaker, the House literally cannot fully form. So swearing in its members, naming its committee chairman, engaging in floor proceedings, and launching investigations of the Biden administration, which apparently is one of the priorities oh, of this new House majority. That's that's where we're at right now. So and McCarthy has vowed he will fight it out on as many ballots as it takes, but his failure will lead to questions about whether Republicans need to move to a different candidate to unite their members. And so there's a few lawmakers to keep an eye on. So House Majority Leader Steve, what's his last name? Scalise. And everyone's been saying Scalise today. I'm like, I'm 99.9% sure it's Scalise. Yeah. I mean, unless, I mean, he's, look, he's a, clearly an Italian from Louisiana. He's not one from New Jersey, but if this were Jersey, it'd be Scalise. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. Rep Jim Jordan from Ohio and Rep Patrick McHenry from North Carolina. And then outside those options, the question of who could win is the ultimate guessing game. Like, honestly, Sam and I could win if we wanted to, like, head out there. Anyone? That's, that's like, such a fun fact Does about anyone the U.S. government, vote for us for though. Speaker? Yeah, like, anyone vote for us for could speakers, be Speaker of the House. Our DMs. Let us know. Yeah. Let us know. I want to know, like, what it would take. Not that I would be, like, Speaker of the House for the Republicans, but... Is this how we go viral? Yeah. I, I nominate myself to be Speaker of the House. If anyone would like to vote for me, hit like, comment below, and then send this in. We should make that today, Thank 100%. You. But Rep. Kevin McCarthy's bid to become the next Speaker of the House fell short 
after this Tuesday debacle over a string of these three consecutive votes, making a very chaotic opening to the new Congress and dampening mm-hmm. the Republican celebration as they took control of the House for the first time since 2018. So it's interesting what they say a celebration because I don't really even feel like there was ever a celebration. I don't think any of them were like too like, woo, we did it, baby. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but sure. it's definitely interesting. We're off to a juicy start. And Love whoever it. says that politics is boring. Oh, my God. It's I not. It's, it's not. I don't have not. words. You know what I also just can't stop thinking about is that mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure Brian, Derek, is, like, on his, his like, annual off-the-grid, like, vacay where he, like, goes yep. into the mountains and, like, hikes with his brother. And he's missing all of this. And that's such a shame. I'm literally visualizing him as one of those, like, <laughs> little... What are those things? Um, you know, like antennas in the middle of nowhere <laughs> yeah. trying to get like radio service. Like, oh, my God. Like to think update. that he's just living right now, not knowing living. what happened is so crazy. But it's wild. That is the crazy update of what's going on in the house today. And then meanwhile, I've also seen like the videos of like the Senate and how fucking boring it is. And they're like swearing at people and like it's just like chill everyone's calm like everyone's good and then the house on the other side is just like it's up like in flames <laughs> literally like dumpster fire i am here for it truly Ugh. well what we're also here for is our guest today i think Facts. we should introduce we should this guest who is an absolute icon she is and this is speaking of like inaugurations the most perfect perfectly timed episode dare we say for also everyone listening you're sometimes a youtube watcher this is not a video episode we will be back with video episodes next week just know this one is not that regardless our guest who is amazing and we're going to be having her back on by the way so if anyone has more questions let us mm-hmm. know slide into our dms you know where to find us send us an email info at girlonthegov.com this guest is michigan supreme court justice Kyra Bolden. She is the first Black Supreme Court Justice on the Michigan Supreme Court, and she is also a former state legislature. Wow, I really still can't say that. Legislator. There it is. This interview, this conversation is not only about her new position, how historic it is, but also what does the Supreme Court Justice at the state level do? What is an election like for a position like that? Why, you know, are Sometimes the elections for this particular positions, for other judicial positions, kind of confusing how that can improve, why things are the way they are, and what she hopes to see in this new position. So it's really exciting. It's a groundbreaking, dare we say, groundbreaking interview, and we can't wait to have her back on. But for now, without further ado, here is Michigan Supreme Court Justice Kyra Bolden. All right, let's get into it. This is so exciting because this is post-election. This is a post-election conversation. And we're talking about your new role as a Supreme Court Justice in Michigan. And we have so many questions, especially about this role, like what it does, how it, you know, comes to be for people and all of that. And let's just start off with what does this role do? Like what's what's the tea? Yeah, so my role on the Supreme Court is very different from my role as a legislator. The Supreme Court is the last word on cases in Michigan, right? So 
you, you, I think people are very accustomed to if there is a civil case, so you have a dispute about, you know, money, property, or you have a criminal case where you're literally determining whether someone should be in prison or not, whether someone's wrongfully convicted, whether it's a violation of the state constitution. The Michigan Supreme Court is the last place that you can go to have your matters adjudicated. And so we have a court system where you can go to your district court, your circuit court, and then you can appeal as of right to your court of appeals. The Michigan Supreme Court only takes a certain amount of cases. And so a large part of the job, which a lot of people don't know, is just deciding on which cases to even hear. And so, and that's huge. So you're talking about the decision-making power on whether or not people can even, you know, have a chance to have to have their case litigated before the Supreme Court. And so it's a huge role with a really, really big impact. And I'm honored to have, to be able to play a part in all that. Yeah. And we'll get into all of that and how it functions in a little bit, but we want to go back and kind of get more on your background. And we know that you were a state representative as well and on the Judiciary Committee. So you tell us about how your background kind of like set you up for this new role in the Supreme Court and especially how, I guess, maybe similarities and differences with the legislative arm as well. Yeah. So I never wanted to be a lawyer until I was <laughs> in college. And there there was a, a path for me where I really wanted to get involved in the judicial system because of my family history, which I've been very vocal about, where my great grandfather was, was lynched in Tennessee in, in 1939. And that caused me to reevaluate my place in the judicial system. And so I became an attorney and I, I practiced in multiple different areas of law. And then I kept thinking, who's writing these laws? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because you can see how the laws affect clients. You can see how they affect everyday people. And some of the ambiguities in the language were just simply cases that weren't contemplated or literal language that just didn't quite make sense, right, practically. And so I thought lending my voice to the legislature when the the laws were being conceived would be a great asset so I could bring my experience to say, hey, this case isn't contemplated within the language of our laws currently. And so I thought that that would be a great space for me. But as with a lot of people, I had to be asked to run for office. So I didn't, you know, just raise my hand and say, hey, yeah, I I think I want (laughs) to do this. A, A seat opened up for me. And I was very fortunate to have the support of my community. I actually had five when I ran for office for the first time in 2018, but I got 45% of the votes because we worked extremely hard and I'm very proud of the work we've done there. And we hit the ground running and I was on, I've been on the judiciary committee since my freshman year. I've gotten five bills passed into law, which is extremely difficult and the minority, but I focused my time on criminal justice reform and protecting survivors of sexual assault and violence. And I'm very proud of the work that we've been able to do. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. And the minority didn't even like, I knew that, but just like hearing it out loud, thinking about actually how that works, that is amazing. And one of the bills that was passed is the address confidential. Oh my gosh, guys, can I say that word now? Confidentiality tongue twister, apparently. Oh my God. For survivors of domestic violence 
And that is a package in and of itself. And we're super curious what that includes, what inspired the passing of that particular package and also what it really does. Yeah. So there are several instances, at least in Michigan, your address can become public. So if you're called for jury duty, if you are, if you're going to go vote, right, your address has to be public to a certain degree. And other states have this. And so we, we got together, myself and some other legislators got together to look at what we could do in Michigan. And it basically conceals the address of the survivor of someone that, that has been in an abusive situation via domestic violence or human trafficking and conceals their address if they are a survivor of sexual assault or violence, as well as human trafficking within the attorney general's office and gives them a fake address so that their abusers can't re-abuse them and find them via their address from a public measure when they go vote or something like that, because you want to be able to vote in your own community and not have to go to a different community so that survivors of sexual assault and human trafficking cannot be found by their abusers. Got it. That's huge game changer. And another game changer is the wrongful imprisonment Compensation Act. And we want to know a little bit more about that as well. Can you give us the background as to how that came to be and what it does as well? Yeah. So what was happening is with our wrongful imprisonment compensation act, which obviously gives compensation to those who are wrongfully convicted, there are cases that were being dismissed simply because the statute says you could file your claim within 18 months, but the court of claims where the case actually goes said you have to file within six months. And so because the wrongful imprisonment statute was incorrect as far as the filing deadline, there were legitimate cases that were being dismissed simply because of the filing deadline issue. And so we simply corrected the issue. We we lined it up with the court of claims so everyone knows when to file. And we also put in a provision that if your case had been dismissed, that you could refile if it was a result of the incongruent timeline of of the bill. So it was a small fix in language, but that had a huge impact in those, particularly those that have been wrongfully convicted. And I'm very proud of that that legislation. It's always been my goal, particularly as an attorney, to to improve the language to improve lives. And that's what Mm -hmm. we were able to do with the Wrongful Imprisonment Compensation Act. Yeah. Well, getting into your switch back then to a judicial role, can you kind of explain that transition and like how it happened and I guess how Supreme Court justices really get appointed? Yes. So my journey is a little different than that of other people that sit on the Supreme Court. So there's usually two ways to gain a seat on the Supreme Court, and that's either by running for a statewide election or getting appointed by the governor. And I kind of happened to do both. (laughs) So this year I ran a statewide election for Michigan Supreme Court. I was unsuccessful. I lost by two percentage points, but we got over 1.3 million votes that I'm very proud of. And then afterward, there was a justice, Justice McCormick stepping down from the bench. And so there was an open seat and I was appointed to that seat after the election. And so those are the the, the two ways that people end up on the Supreme Court. I ended up with an appointment, but most people 
don't run for office before they're appointed. So I've, I've had that experience. My, we're my just, journey. We're just running uh, through lots of firsts, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've, I, this year has been something. So what for me, I was planning on running for my third term. We have term limits here, pretty strict term limits here in Michigan, where you can serve in, in the state house for six years. I've served now four. And I was going to run for my third term. I was going to be in House leadership, leading the House. And the Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence, me, in June of 2021, and said, would you ever consider running for Michigan Supreme Court? And I said, well, sure. But, you know, after my legislative term ends, because I only have another two years, I can serve. And she said, oh, no, this year or next year. It was next, next year. And I said, no. And it's never good to turn down a congressman or wim- or woman. But I did because in the background of that, I was planning to try to have a child. And I'm very vocal about my journey, my reproductive journey. I've suffered a miscarriage and I suffer from uterine fibroids. And so I didn't know if I would be able to have children. But one thing I did not want is to run a statewide race and go through you know, the struggles of a reproductive journey, because I I know what it's like. And so when I was safely in my second trimester, no, it really doesn't make sense. But I thought, hey, yeah, I should run for Michigan Supreme Court, because, you know, while I thought about it in terms of running a statewide race while having a full-time job in, in, a leg- in the legislature and being pregnant, it really sounds insane t- to do, but I really was propelled to do so because I was pregnant, because there has never been a voice on the Supreme Court of a, of a Black woman. And I just couldn't look my daughter in the face and tell her that I had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I just didn't do it because yeah. of know because of whatever reason and for me representation is so important and so even if I wasn't successful I think it's important for people to see what is possible and and so I decided to to run and ran pregnant with a full-time job in the legislature and came up a little short but that's an amazing journey yeah no what an amazing journey and like I always wonder too how like Can you tell us a little bit what the campaigning process is like for justices? Because is it different, especially, I mean, you have the perfect experience because you also ran for like a legislative role as well, but we also elect justices in California. And I always have like a really hard time kind of figuring out who to vote for justice-wise because it's, you know, usually nonpartisan and there's like not as much campaigning and there's not much out there about these people. So I'm just curious, like what your experience is like campaigning for a role like that compared to like a traditional kind of legislative role and if it differs from from that yeah what's really interesting because this was my third election running for state representative in a particular district to you know for 50,000 votes versus over a million votes is very different as it turns yeah. out you know you're you're talking about going And Michigan is a very big state. Mm -hmm. It's a very big state. And so you're talking about 
traveling to different communities. You're talking about traveling to the Upper Peninsula times, right? And I was doing all this while I was or with a newborn. So that kind of added an extra layer. But it's a very, very grueling process to try to go to so many events. I mean, there were some times where I went to five to seven events in a day. You want to meet as many people as possible. But that's how I run campaigns. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's typical for a judicial candidate mm-hmm. because it is very difficult. You can't answer a lot of the questions that people have. I got tons of questions about, you know, how do you feel about abortion? Well, I can't answer, you know, any of those questions. I think the one thing that that was good for me was that I have a legislative record that's a public record that people could look up and look into. And I would just say, you know, I've done very public work. If you want to know more about my work, feel free to, you know, Google me. You can look at my, you know, legislative website, but most people don't have that background. And so it is very difficult to pick judicial candidates. But, you know, I would say you, you, this is the point where you really have to do your research. Usually, if there's an organization that you particularly align with values-wise, Mm-hmm. They typically endorse judge. And so I received endorsements from a number of organizations and, and they would, you know, put it on their website if we were endorsed. So I would say that that would probably be one of the best ways. But even so, when you get to kind of the lower courts, a lot of people don't endorse in the in those lower court races. Find an organization. And that that will endorse or that endorses candidates. And and you can I would encourage you to even ask the candidates directly, Mm -hmm. you know, email their campaign account and ask them, who are you endorsed by or or are you endorsed by this organization if it's not available on their website? So I I had people do that uh, for me all the time and say, hey, you know, are you endorsed by any unions? Are you endorsed by any environmental groups? So that would be the best way to find out information about a judicial candidate. Just email them directly and ask what organizations are they endorsed by if it's not readily available on the website. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have a question about that. So you know how, like, for example, like Emily's list endorses typically like Democratic pro, not even typically, like their bread and butter is pro-choice Democratic women. Is it like... How does that endorsement process work then if like then the judicial candidate isn't allowed to say like, oh, I'm pro-choice, I'm pro-climate change policy, you know what I mean? Like, how does that end work? Like, why is there like sort of like a back end loophole? Like, I'm here for it because this helps us understand everything. Yeah. But like, what does that look like? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Either some organizations have specific judicial questionnaires and they'll ask about your judicial philosophy. They'll ask you, you know, have you in your legal career worked on a particular issue? And they'll, they'll ask more about your career rather than, you know, how you would rule on a particular issue or what your personal thoughts, thoughts are on a particular issue, you know, and so that is the main way that organizations endorse and some don't have judicial questionnaires. And so sometimes you just fill out your, your name and your, in your address and phone number and, and you send it in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. Re- no, they do research and you know, yeah. you're, some, you're somebody they want to endorse. Well, on that note, we wanted to get into our Iowa stupid question segment a little bit and get to know 
how this role functions. And to kick it off, we kind of already talked about like how these justices are either selected or elected, but curious about term limits, especially at the state level. Are they, how long are they? Do they, are they life terms like the federal level? Like how does that work? So in Michigan, you can serve up until the age of 70. So there are no term limits, limits, but we have an age limit, which is really interesting and unique. The terms for the Supreme Court are eight years. And except for if you're appointed, then you have to run two years after you're appointed. And then you take the term of the Supreme Court justice whose seat you're filling. And so for me, I have to run again in two years and then in four years after that, because I'm taking the term of the vacated Justice McCormick. So it's it's a lot. But if you win your election, it's an eight year term. And so there is a lot of incentive to try to just win your election. But appointment is obviously an honor as well. Amazing. Interesting. Eight-year terms. The 70-year situation is particularly interesting. interesting because it's like, okay, why that number? Why specifically 70? Like it's past social security, you know, starting. So it's just, I don't know. I'm always so interested with like these term limits, like how they get decided and especially the age ones, you know, what's behind it. And I'm jumping back to the campaign end of things. What are like, you know, like with like a, a legislative role and someone has like their campaign slogans and their website and the, you know, like maybe it's like the four topic areas or policy areas that they really want to focus on. What does that look like from a judicial campaign standpoint? Like what are the, you know, the points that you direct voters to, or like, say like, these are the things I want you guys to pay attention to. So it's different for every judge or justice, but obviously we can't say we're for or against certain things where we are unbiased jurists that are simply interpreting the law. So for me, it was really a lot of background about me as a person. And obviously I encourage people to look at my legislative history, which I think was very helpful for people to understand at least the things that I, I, um, that I care about. But I, my slogan was justice for generations. And I came up with that slogan because you know, I think that it's important to have younger people on the court that have a stake in the future that that represents the perspective of people who are going to live the consequences of the decisions being made. But also because of my own family's history that got me into the legal field as well. And so so for me, Justice for Generations represented me and um, but, you know, other people will say protecting the rule of law you know, equal justice for all, you know, probably very vague slogan. It is very difficult to campaign when you can't really say anything. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I love your slogan. That is genius. Obsessed. Well, we are also curious how a court decides to take cases on versus not. I know you kind of mentioned earlier, that's like a big part of the job is like figuring out which cases to even look at. So do you know like what really the, I guess, criteria, the process is as far as how is each justice different as far as like their criteria of how they choose? Like, can you kind of explain that process? Yeah. So we get a list and honestly, nobody really knows this information. It's very unique. You get a list of all the cases that are are being appealed from the Court of Appeals. And then every week, the justices have what's called conference, where they literally vote 
on whether or not they're going to take up a particular case. And each justice has a different criteria or evaluation process for which cases they they actually want to see. But yeah, it's actually it's it's by a vote, majority vote. Wow. There it is. And mm-hmm. see, voting always matters in so many different <laughs> contexts. It's wild. Democracy matters. Exactly. Exactly. There it is. In terms of the cases that typically land at the Supreme Court level, what do those look like? Is there a general theme? Like, I'm sure, obviously, they go across an array of topics, but like, what is like a general theme that kind of happens there? And also, what is the process for those cases getting to the Supreme Court in general? Like, how does that happen? How does it get all the way up to the top? Yeah, so, I mean, you'll see some issues that are kind of frequent flyers, I would say. If there is a particularly troubling issue and you see a lot of cases within that issue, then you might see the Supreme Court take it up just to say, hey, this is the answer. You know, you'll see a lot of criminal issues, a lot of people appealing their sentence, appealing or appealing whether their their treatment or even whether they were... Um, you know, conviction, you'll see a lot of different things in the criminal sphere. And civil, it could be anything from car insurance to taxes to a a myriad of different civil issues. And again, when those cases get appealed, this every justice has their own criteria about whether it should be taken up or not. But the process is either your case starts in the district court or the circuit court, and you appeal to the court of appeals if you, you know, don't like your ruling or there's some type of error. The court of appeals goes through the process. They make a determination. And then we we would review all of the cases that have been appealed from the court of appeals to decide whether we should actually take up the case or if we should just affirm the court of appeals decision. And so, you know, I would say probably two to three percent of cases will actually go to the Supreme Court. And those are probably issues that keep coming up or really affect the way that people live their lives. Mm hmm. And how can people kind of keep track of these cases if there is one that they are interested in seeing what the outcome turns out to be? Like, is there a way that average citizens can track and like kind of see where these cases land? Yes. So the Michigan Supreme Court website has all of the information about opinions, what cases are being heard, and actually oral arguments are live streamed. And so one thing when I get all set, I will post the link every time we have oral arguments so people can actually watch from the comfort of their home or office a particular case and see what what we're doing and what questions we ask. And I, I think that's a really important process of this is to be transparent with the public. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Totally. Well, That's kind of our next question, too, is like in terms of judgeships, in terms of the court system, like what are the things you think could make it more transparent for people? And especially like from a young person's perspective, I know both of us have always, you know, tried to be on top of candidates and outcomes and seeing, you know, what's happening. And for some reason, this particular segment of government has been really hard to find information on or find access points to. And, you know, we obviously, we obviously want to change that. And we're just curious too, from your end, your perspective, what you think could be done, maybe it's from a legislative perspective that activates part of the court or what that could really change that transparency end. 
Yeah. So I think for me, it's always been important to be in the public. I think you should see judges and justices in everyday situations. And so for me, it's important to, I know I have a, a few speaking engagements coming up, whether it's talking to a school, reading to books to children, whether it's speaking at a graduation or things like that. I think those those things are really important. I think it's also important to get involved with different organizations, you know, community organizations, with bar organizations, which which I am a part of. I, I think that, unfortunately, this is a space where people have to be a little bit more, I wouldn't say more engaged. Usually people wait for information to come to them, right? You know, either a legislator or something, they'll send you mail, you'll see a commercial or things like that, that will prompt you to find out more information. Unfortunately, with judgeships, you know, when you get your ballot, a lot of people vote by absentee ballot or vote early or get a sample ballot. You have to Google, you know, these candidates and look at their history. If they if they have a website or not, you know, that that should be a consideration, right? If someone didn't take the time to even create a website for you to get in touch with them, has this person earned your vote? If you do email them and they don't email you back, has this person earned your vote? And I know it takes a lot more energy on the part of, you know, of people, but th- these are such important positions. And I really feel like I've gone to candidate forums. I've gone to a candidate forum inside of a jail because people who are detained in Michigan, but not convicted of a crime can still vote. And so I took the time to make sure that they saw me and that I saw them because votes are earned. And so if we had If they had any questions or if I could share a little bit about my story, that's important. And so for me, those are the people that you want to try to to take a second look at or to think about giving your vote to people that are really working hard to make sure that they're in spaces and trying to reach as many people as possible. But I know that it's difficult, but Google, Google, (laughs) Google these people because these are is a power that are very important. Yeah, I definitely experienced that with when I was yeah. voting, I was like, I couldn't find websites or anything for people. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, how do I, I didn't, didn't even feel comfortable voting on anybody. Cause I was like, well, I don't even know what, 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 anything about these people, but curious to kind of like what you're excited for, for this new role. And if there are certain priorities that you have going into it of like something, maybe even what inspired you to kind of make this jump of like what you want to see done in the Michigan Supreme Court. Yeah, I think one of the most important things, and and we have some phenomenal justices currently, I think it's important to have, like I said, the perspective, and I don't really consider myself to be, I guess I'm young in, you know, theory, but, you know, I feel like I have a mortgage kid and whatnot, but I think the perspective of a millennial, even an elder millennial, I think is important because again, we're going into a space where people are making decisions about how we live our lives. And I think that perspective should be at the table, Mm -hmm. people that have stakes in the future. I think that, you know, the perspective of a woman or a Black woman, I I think is incredibly important. But one thing that I would like to do, especially with my legislative background, is when we're making decisions, and this actually just happened, 
there are situations where in the opinions, justices will say, hey, the legislature should take a look at this or fix it. And I think with my ties to the legislature, not thinking of not legislating from the bench, but at least sending issues to the legislature that they should correct if we got it wrong, right? If that is not what the legislature intended, perhaps you all should take a look at it and clarify the language so that everyone is on the same page about how this should be interpreted. So staying involved with how I can be involved with criminal justice reform. So not not necessarily reform, but making sure that people don't get into the system in the first place, <laughs> whatever I can do. But I can also, you know, oversee expungements and whatnot. So I, I want to still stay involved in the community. And I think there's a bigger role that judges and justices can play rather other than just interpreting cases or language. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, we're super excited for you. This is going to be awesome. And we can't wait to see all of the cases that you get to hear and all of the work that you get to continue doing in the community. So congratulations. And thank you so much for walking us through all of these questions and giving some clarity on role that we've been wondering about for quite some time and definitely needed some more deets on. So we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.